Lord, we agree with those prayers and certainly desire to worship you this morning and to see you from your word and understand the things about you that not only make you unique, but uh, give us all that we need in order that we may function in the way that you designed and you desire. So we commit our time this morning to you, desiring that uh, there be anything that hinders us from understanding or gaining insight from your word that you would in fact bring any sin to our mind that we may confess it and be in full fellowship with you. And we uh, desire to maximize what you have for us this morning. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Last week we were looking at God's self-existence and this this week we're going to look at another perfection of God. We call it God's immutability this week. And basically, Mary Lee already prayed about everything that we're going to cover, so let's close in prayer and go home. <laughs> but anyway, I noticed after we were done that I skipped a whole section on your outline sheet from last week, and I just wanted to emphasize, and let's start off with a couple of scriptures from there. When we speak of God's self-existence, what we mean is he has no needs, the very opposite of us, and in that, he is also the one that, the reason he is self-existent and has no needs is because everything comes from him. So I wanted to give you a few scriptures that uh, indicate that. So he's the giver of all things. We are the recipients and the beneficiaries of God's goodness and God's graciousness. One scripture, James 1, 17, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above. So virtually everything, every breath, every sustenance, every shelter that we talked about that we need is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation and shifting shadow. There's immutability along with God giving all things. You can also use Philippians 4.19, And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So everything comes from him and nothing goes back. So when we praise him, when we worship him, we're just acknowledging, we're not adding anything to God. We're just acknowledging that Everything comes from him, and we praise him and worship him for that. I emphasize that our service, we've talked about that last time, he doesn't need us at all. I use the illustration of Emmy and that situation I told you about. So we need to be mindful that everything comes from him, and anything we give back, whether it be financial or service or evangelism or whatever, it's not adding anything to him. He doesn't need any of that. He just wants us to be a part of it so we get the joy. Another passage, Psalm 127, 2. It is vain for you to rise up early. I'm glad you did this morning, though. (laughs) (laughs) To retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. (laughs) So while even we are sleeping, God is supplying everything that we need. And there's other passages that indicate God is the one that sends and gives all things to us. And 
he has no need for us. So, just a quick review. We talked about perfections, and I just wanted to, since this is the last one that we'll do for at least a while anyway, just some more reminders of what these are. First of all, they represent all his qualities that are perfect. That's why we call them perfections. Not just qualities, but attributes. We have attributes. They're all finite. They're all tainted by sin. But in terms of God, they're perfect. So we describe them as perfections. All his qualities, or you might say attributes, are perfect. And when you view them, they're not individual parts of God, but they are what God is, and they're just descriptions of different aspects. Remember the unity or the uh, simplicity of God that we talked about. Thirdly, he is more than uh, the sum of his perfections. He's more than the sum of his perfections. What we have in Scripture are simply what God has been pleased to reveal to us. There are things about him that we may never know, and I think in eternity we will learn other things as well. Fourthly, we only know what he chooses through revelation. We can't figure God out. He's incomprehensible. No one could sit down and come up with a description of God. You can't find him scientifically. You can't find him philosophically. You can't find him or understand him rationally comes through what God has been pleased to reveal. So the only accurate picture that we have of God comes from Scripture, the revelation that he has given to us. Fifthly, they describe the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we come to immutability, because there seems to be, for example, what about Philippians 2? where it says Christ emptied himself. seems like something of a change, something radical even. So we'll discuss that. And some other passages where it talks about God repenting. Have you heard of that? Yeah. Now that's a King James translation, and it probably is a better translation, but it does at least seem like God, some translations say, changed his mind. Did he change his mind? What's going on with those passages? So we're going to talk about God's immutability, God's nature as unchanging. Kathy? Bring out how instead of attributes, perfections. Mm -hmm. I was reading on my almond bag, and it was saying these are the attributes. So I thought of almonds made perfections is better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Now... The ordinary person on the street, and oftentimes, unfortunately, the person in the pew next to you has misconceptions about what these are, and the common attitude is God changes his plan as needed. And one idea would be that after man sinned, now God thinks, well, how do I resolve this? Let's come up with a plan that includes redemption. Well... That's a misconception, and that goes against some other clear passages. So God does not revise his plan as needed because he's immutable. Secondly, well, there's the point I was making. After the fall, salvation is initiated, and Scripture indicates that Christ was crucified when? 
before the foundations of the world. Yes, that's right. So there's a plan that was affected before man fell. Thirdly, some think that when we speak of immutability, that means that God is kind of frozen or immobile, and that's a misconception as well. So God is not immobile. Immutability does not mean immobility. Very common today, well, I shouldn't say very common, but there are in some circles, and it may have died out, I don't know, I haven't heard anything recently, but several years ago, a few years ago, there was a idea that came about called open theism, open theism. And much of open theism, and these are amongst evangelicals. Any of you heard of open theism? Well, I'll tell you a little bit about it. Some well-known theologians, for example, Pinnock, Clark Pinnock, one of the leaders in this. I don't know if he's revised his thinking. This was about 15, 20 years ago when it was coming about. But open theism basically goes against the idea of immutability. In fact, it has that common idea of God revising his plans depending on what man does. Make sense? Mm-hmm. So, uh, some of the main things that they stress, they stress man's freedom. Mm-hmm. The idea that when God created man, he took a, a chance, he took a risk. In fact, those are the wor- very words that they would use. He wanted a creature in his creative work that had choice and freedom. Now, I think the Bible teaches that, but it does not negate the immutability of God. And open theism almost goes against that. So this freedom to reject God was a chance that God took. So it's a distortion of the whole area of freedom, which I think the Bible does teach. He does give volition, but it has parameters and limits and other things that do not override the immutability of God. God's decisions are contingent on man. This is another idea of open theism. If man responds in one way, God's going to act one way. If man responds in another way, God will take a different (laughs) path. Open theism. Thirdly, and this goes against some other attributes, that God really doesn't have a complete knowledge of the future. He knows only some of the future. How do some of these people come up with Do they actually find some remote verse that... Yes. We're going to look at some of those verses. They really do. They, yes. They've got yeah. some reason for why they can come up with that statement. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I'll give you some of the verses. Fourthly, God responds to man. Well, it's kind of a summary of everything we said, because all of the above, God is responding to man rather than man responding to God. Another point that they stress is he changes as man changes. So that's overtly contrary to immutability. And many Christians have this idea. Prayer changes God's direction. Now, in some way, prayer is effective. In some way, God says he hears our prayers, but does this change God in terms of his immutability? And the answer we would have to say is no. So there's a balance here. There's a, there's a perspective that I think is biblical, and the stress in this, I think, is an imbalance and unbiblical. Bill? Norm Geisler, in his book, Chosen But Free, 
I think, lays this issue out the best I've ever run into. In his first chapter, he says everything is is predetermined. Everything is, is completely locked in place. In his second chapter, he says everything is free will. <laughs> that we And, and yeah. you, there's solid yeah. scriptural yeah. basis for exactly. both. In the third chapter, he says both are true. And the defining verse for that is Isaiah 55, 8, 9, where God says, My ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts, and my ways above your ways. The point being, we as humans say, well, it's got to be one or the other, and God says, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. You human beings don't have the intellectual capacity to understand what I'm doing, and this is part of what I'm doing. So both are true. Absolutely. Um, we have freedom of choice. Absolutely God responds to prayer, and he does so for remaining immutable, and we don't have the intellectual capacity to understand that. Right. However, open theism does, in fact, undermine the immutability because they stress these over those other passages that deal with immutability, which is an imbalance. All the scripture is true, but not all the scripture is subject to our understanding. Yeah, we have bad eyesight, yeah. is what the Bible says. That's exactly right. Dirty window. Dirty window. Yeah. That's exactly right. Okay. Some of these doctrines are not very clear to us now. Where is it? First uh, Corinthians 13, where it tells us that now we just see in part. We see in a mirror dimly, but eventually when we are face-to-face with him, Many of these things will be far more clear. Okay? That's <laughs> Exactly. So, does God revise his plan? We'll deal with that. I have to ask him. How does prayer affect God? Talk a little bit about that as well. But, I think the scriptures are clear in saying that God does not change in his essence and purposes. I think that's clear. God does not change in his essence and his purposes based on the passages that we'll look at. So immutability, changing in his essence. Let's look at that aspect. There are several passages. I'll give you a few of them. And if you want more, I can give you more later. Changing in his essence. Theologians try to put this together and describe it. Tozer, for example, all that God is... He has always been, so over time he has not changed, and all that he has been and is, he will ever be. That's immutability. To say that God is immutable is to say that he never differs from himself. So in essence, he never changes. Never changes, that's right. Hodge, another theologian, says, as an infinite and absolute being, self-existent, we talked about that last time, and absolutely independent, those two are related, self-existence and independence, God is exalted above all causes of and even above the possibility of change. So it's impossible for God to change. God is immutable. Key passage, Psalm 102, 26-27. Even they will perish, speaking of the earth and people, but thou dost endure, and all of them will wear out like a garment. In other words, degenerate, 
go from good to bad, from better to worse, and all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. Thou will change them, and they will be changed, but thou art the same. God remains the same in essence, and thy years will not come to an end. He is also eternal. He's eternally the same in the same context. There's an Old Testament passage, also Malachi 3.6. God himself declares, for I, the Lord, do not change. Very clear. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Because God has declared certain things about Jacob that will preserve them. And he's not going to change his mind. This is a comfort to Israel. And that pertains to Israel today, even though it was written in the Old Testament. God has a plan that he has not completed, that he will fulfill, and he has not abandoned those that he's called to himself. It's a comfort to Israel, and there's a corresponding comfort to the believer in the New Testament as well. So this is a comforting doctrine to not think that God, well, he's going to get mad at me, and all of a sudden he's going to abandon me. That goes against immutability. If you want a couple of other passages, Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or thou didst give birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. So from eternity past to eternity future, God remains God. He does not change also, Romans 1.23 describes God as the incorruptible God. He's not going to degenerate. He's not going to be corrupted in any way. So he's unchanging in essence. Secondly, he's unchanging in his attributes. Unchanging in his attributes. We have Psalm 104.31 let the glory of the Lord endure forever. When we think of the glory of the Lord, think in terms of all of the attributes, all of the perfections together. In other words, the total glory of God. So when you see that word, think more in terms of the composite of who God is. So let the glory of the Lord endure forever. It's phrased as a prayer, but it's also acknowledging that God is eternally glorious. His attributes do not change. James 1, 17, God is described as the father of lights with whom there is no variation. He doesn't change. His perfections don't change. No variation or shifting shadow. So God remains the same. You might even say... His sovereignty endures forever as well. He's described in Jeremiah 10.10. 10, he is the living God and the everlasting king. In other words, he always reigns. His reign is never interrupted. Now, it may change form as it's manifested in different periods of time, but he remains the everlasting king. He's sovereign and his sovereignty is never diminished. 
His love, His mercy are eternal. Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. That's directed to Israel, but same could be said for the believer in the New Testament and in our age, in the church age. Psalm 103.17, the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. In other words, from eternity to eternity, God's chesed, God's covenant love or God's unconditional love is from eternity to eternity. And there are other passages, uh, Psalm 119.89, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. God's word is immutable. Jesus, Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. His words are immutable. So he's unchanging in his attributes. He is also, thirdly, unchanging in his decrees. You can use Psalm 33, 11 as a passage that indicates that the counsel of the Lord stands forever. An illusion, or you might say another way of phrasing, decrees his counsel. And then it goes on, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. In other words, we, his plans are ongoing, unchanging plans. So his decrees are unchanging. That means the things that he's decreed in terms of Israel, the things that he's decreed in terms of the church will not change. He's got a plan for Israel. He's got a plan for the church. Those things will not change. It's not that he changes. It's just that we get to see a different part of it because our eyes look at the elephant. Yeah, exactly. And uh, That's good. Is that yep. that idea. Yeah. At so, different points, we see God working in different ways. It's, it's still there. So yeah. he's not tri- trying to figure out a new road to the goal right. we didn't know about. Exactly. An illustration that we could use in terms of God's unfolding plan would be something like observing a parade. We are on the street level, and we see one float passing by, a series of bands and other things, each in a sequence of time, and we have that limited viewpoint, the street level. But God looks at the total parade as if he were on a 10-story or a skyscraper. From that perspective, he sees the beginning, he sees the end, he sees everything in between. And that's the perspective that he has, which is very, very different from the perspective that we have on the street level. He has a plan for Gentiles. He has plans for many areas, and those will not change. Those are his decrees. He's set forth in Scripture and given us uh, some insight into what some of those are, where he's clearly stated what he plans to do. Fourthly, he's unchanging in his purposes. So his purposes don't change. Psalm 110, verse 4 The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. He's not going to change his mind in terms of his plans, what he's decided to do. In the New Testament, we have Hebrews 6.17, the unchangeableness of his purpose. Can you find any passage clearer than that? 
in terms of unchanging purposes. So God's purposes are unchanging. We're going to look at uh, 1 Samuel 15.29 later, but let me state it now because it deals with changing his mind and changing his purposes. It reads, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. So his purposes are unchanging. We could say that God is never inconsistent. He remains constant. He's stable. Stable in his essence, stable in his attributes, stable in his decrees, stable in his purposes, never inconsistent. Also, God never grows. He doesn't get smarter. He doesn't gain knowledge. We grow, but he does not. He's omniscient, so he doesn't increase in knowledge, nor does he decrease in knowledge. So he doesn't grow. He doesn't get better. He doesn't uh, degenerate. doesn't grow. And everything that we've said pertains not just to the Father, but pertains also to the Holy Spirit. And we can certainly say that it pertains to Jesus Christ himself. Hebrews 13.8 makes this clear. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes, and forever. So Jesus is immutable. He's immutable because he is God. This is a passage that speaks of the deity of Christ. He's unchanging. You could also utilize Hebrews 7.25. Hence also he is able to save forever, referring to Jesus, those who draw near to God through him, through Jesus, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Always. He's continuous. Continually prays for us. Everything else, all others, everything in the universe, in fact, the universe itself, changes, but God does not. Astrophysicists observe the universe, and they see evolution of stars. That's their their way of describing it. Now, I wouldn't use the word evolution, but they're observing changes that take place in astrophysics. So the universe changes. It was created, and I believe that God made some radical changes after man sinned that affected all of the heavens, and you can include the earth as well. The sin of man affected changes in the nature of all of the universe, and those things continue because we are living in a cursed world, but that was a radical change. So the creation changes, but God does not. God does not change. We will see changes in the future at the second coming. There'll be some radical changes on earth and also in the heavens. So all things change except God. Sinners have the potential of changing. They can receive Jesus Christ and have transformation of hearts. Angels change. In fact, the scriptures teach of some abandoning a prior position or abode, referring to the demonic angels. So angels were created with the possibility of change. And certainly believers change. We want to grow. We want to become more Christ-like. 
and not to speak of just simply all of the physical things that we experience all the time, just the uh, aging process, the growing process in terms of knowledge, and the possibility of both positive and negative changes. So believers change all the same, all the time. We could say that all is unstable in the created realm. All that God has created is, to some extent, unstable. But it's only God that is stable because he is immutable. Only God is stable. Well, what about this idea of God changing? And what are the arguments that some of those, like those that believe in open theism, where do they get their ideas concerning the nature of God and more specifically concerning God changing? Well, they will point to things like the creation and they would say that uh, the creation has changed and we would acknowledge that, but that's the creation and there's a distinction between God and the creation. The creation, even though it comes from the hand of God, built into it is that potential for change. And when God created man, for example, man was given volition and God was pleased to give man the ability to choose and that in itself. Volition is the essence of change itself. So there's a distinction between the creator and the creation. The creator is unchanging, but the creation has the potential and in fact does change moment by moment. What about some of those passages that speak of God repenting, for example? A classic passage that the open theist would use is Genesis 6.6. 6. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Now, the King James, I think, translates that the Lord repented concerning the making of man or Similar phraseology, speaking of God repenting or changing. Well, I think there's a difference between God changing and God having emotion. I think scriptures speak of God experiencing experiencing emotion. Here's one of them, I believe, Genesis 6, 6. There's other passages as well. God grieves. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean that God is up and down, that God changes in terms of even emotions, but it does acknowledge that there is something in God that experiences something like what we experience in terms of emotion. It's part of God building in us the image of God. So that passage doesn't necessarily, strictly speaking, mean that God changes. Well, how do we resolve this? And on your outline sheet, I give you a list of ways to answer the open theist. First of all, we would prioritize those clear passages that uh, emphasize or clearly state that God is unchanging, and we would hold to immutability. The open theist would uh, deny some of those passages or reinterpret them. Now, we're not denying that God has given freedom and volition and uh, there are some passages like the Genesis 6-6 passage where there appears to be apparent repentance. But then we have clear passages that uh, seem to indicate 
that uh, God does not change. And this repenting or this apparent repentance is only apparent. For example, Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man. He's different from man. Now, we're in the image of God, but God is far different from us. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. There's the word, or change. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? In other words, God does not repent. God does not change. The passages that seem to indicate that he does, you need to harmonize with these clear passages like Numbers 23, 19, where it says he does not repent. And any repentance is only in relationship to man, and it's an apparent repentance and does not in any way take away the immutability of God. We already read the First Samuel fifteen twenty nine passage. Let me repeat it. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. Clear passage. For he is not a man that he should change his mind. We change our mind. In fact, it's the prerogative of a woman to change her mind. But God does not. God does not change his mind. So First Samuel fifteen twenty nine, Numbers 23, 19 are clear passages that go against the idea of God changing or repenting, and any changing or apparent repentance is only apparent. Now, the scriptures in many places uses apparent language or language of appearance. For example, we use the common expression, the sun rises and the sun sets. The Bible uses similar language. It uses the same kind of language Yet we know scientifically that the earth revolves around the sun. It's not the sun that revolves around the earth by rising and setting, but we refer to it because we're looking at it from the perspective of earth. And from the perspective of earth, it appears as if the sun is rising and then going across the sky and then eventually in the evening setting. But that's language of appearance. Similarly, we would say some of this language is used in terms of God changing. So we prioritize the clear passages that indicate that God is immutable, unchanging, and then we can easily harmonize some of these other passages that seem to indicate that God changes. There's other passages that seem to indicate that God changes directions, for example, Exodus thirty-two fourteen. So the Lord changed his mind. There you go. Almost seems to indicate that God changed his mind. We would say this is one of those passages that, from man's perspective, it appears as if God had changed his mind. So it's an apparent change of mind. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. This is after the incident in the wilderness where the children of Israel sinned grievously. God announces judgment. He talks it over with Moses. And in this context, it speaks of God changing his mind. From the perspective of what God said he should do in terms of judgment, it appeared that God changed his mind in that he did not effect the judgment. And we have a conversation with Moses and God 
it appeared as if God changed his mind. Can I ask a quick question? Sure. You can even ask a long question. (laughs) Take the golden calf and it comes down. There's a conversation between Moses and the verses and everything. So was that interchange between Moses and God just for Moses' sake? I would come to a conclusion, something like that. And if it doesn't change Mm -hmm. his mind. Yep. I don't know, it's remnant. Yep. Not the whole. Right. Yep, you're right. We do have a record of the conversation between God and and Moses, and it's presented in a way much like we would have a conversation. So I think there's anthropomorphic elements there. We have language of appearance. In other words, it appears as if Moses is arguing with God, etc. But again, back to the illustration that I used God is not only observing from the skyscraper, but he is the one that has put together the parade. It's his plan, and he has a plan. He has an intention. And from the perspective that Moses is looking at it, God is interacting with Moses in the middle as some of the details are working themselves out. So you might even call these changes anthropomorphic changes and anthropomorphism in scripture is a figure of speech where in some contexts God is described in human terms and I think some of these like the Exodus 32 14 passage may fall into that category where God is pictured as if like man in changing his mind but we go back to the Numbers 23.19 for Samuel 15.29 and other passages where it makes clear that God does not change his mind. So anthropomorphisms are very common in Scripture. God is spoken of, for example, as having hands, the hands of the Lord or the strength of his arms and language that appears to picture God as if he had body parts. But there's other passages that make clear that God doesn't have a physical body. And these descriptions are that we might better understand something of what God is like. And the strong arm is uh, an image that speaks of the omnipotence and the power of God. So the Bible is full of these anthropomorphic language or words And we could view some of these changes as anthropomorphic changes. There are also some passages that we could argue are phrased in terms of conditional situations. In other words, God announces, if you do this, I'm going to do this. If you do the opposite, then I'm going to also do something different as well. So in time, it appears that God is dealing with man on the basis of how man responds. So you might say in one sense that is true, but these are conditional. That that doesn't mean that God changed his plans or doesn't mean that God revised what he was going to do. He's announcing these conditional situations. If one set of circumstances goes in one direction, he's going to act in one way in time. And if it's different, then he will act accordingly. Jonah 3, 4, and 10 would be good examples of 
that where God announces in Jonah 3, 4, and 5, then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, let 40 days, and Nineveh will be overturned. God told him to give a message of judgment to the Ninevites. After Jonah repents of his rebellion, he he actually follows through in chapter 3. And then in verse 5, Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. They repented. But this is a conditional situation. And if you skip down to verse 10, Jonah 3.10, When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked ways, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. This is one of those conditional situations. There's repentance. So from man's perspective, it appears that God revised what he was going to do. But it's more of a conditional situation. You might even say it's also anthropomorphic. God is portrayed using language that would be typical of man, but God is not a man that he should repent. So Jonah gives us a little example there. We also have Jeremiah eighteen seven through 10. At one moment, I might speak, this is God, concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down or destroy it. Verse 8, here's the condition. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. He's using anthropomorphic language. He's speaking as if God is there changing his mind, relenting. But in reality, the clear passages indicate that God is immutable. So we have a conditional situation here. And you might even say anthropomorphic. Verse 9 Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. Verse 10, if it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then, here's the other alternative or the other condition, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. So we have language of appearance anthropomorphic, you might say, conditional. So, changing directions, we can answer that one. Now, the open theist would use all of these passages to try to argue the case for God open in terms of the future, open in terms of his dealings with man, and uh, changing depending on different circumstances. Well, what about Christ? What about the incarnation? What about Jesus becoming man? The key passage here is Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7. We don't have time to develop it in some detail, but in verse 7 we have the the issue brought to the forefront, and there's some confusion as to what's going on there. So let's spend a few moments here trying to explain what is going on in this passage. Now, Philippians 2, verse 6, referring to Christ, who although he, the he there is Christ, existed in the form of God, looking at his pre-existence, 
In other words, before Mary, before first century, God existed in the form of God because he is God. Verse 6 goes on, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And then here's the problem. But verse 7, but emptied himself. It seems to be a huge change. Emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now, people have had a problem with this idea of emptying himself. The Greek word kanao, in general, has the idea of having a container full of something, and then you can empty it. That's one of the ways that that word can be translated. And emptied is probably not a bad translation, so we don't have a problem with the translation. The problem is, what does it mean? What did he empty himself of? Probably the best explanation is not that he emptied himself of any attributes or any aspect of his essence or his nature, but what he emptied himself of is the voluntary use of all of the divine attributes that he never relinquished. That makes sense? In other words, he did not empty himself of attributes. He retained the attributes and limited himself. That's what he emptied himself of. He could have, as Satan tempted him to turn stones into bread, he could have done it, omnipotent. But he limited himself or he emptied himself of the utilization of his omnipotent power in order that he may, in fact, experience a bondservant being made in the likeness of men. On some occasions, he displayed his omnipotence, all of the miracles, but all of them were performed only at the will of the Father and only on the occasions where the Father granted him use of those. So that was what he emptied himself, is the utilization of the perfections that he did not relinquish in any way. He would have ceased to be God had he done that, and he did not cease to be God. In fact, the passage speaks of Jesus also being immutable. So that's probably the best explanation of that passage. So this passage does not speak of Christ changing. So the incarnation, as pictured in Philippians 2, 6, and 7, does not add to the idea of open theism and does not go against immutability. Well, what about believers after conversion? Doesn't God take a different attitude towards us? We're enemies before conversion, but after conversion, we are at peace. We're sons. We have a new relationship. Well, the change is in us, not in God. The change is because we have experienced a change in relationship. It has nothing to do with God changing in any way. He has always loved us. In fact, he views us from his eternal perspective. And I believe in the doctrine of election. And he chose us before the foundations of the world. Is what Ephesians 1.3 tells us. So in a sense, from God's perspective... Our salvation has been certain and there has been no change from his perspective. Now, certainly we change because we always change whether we are believers or not. 
but it's a change in us and not a change in God. Well, what are some of the implications? And we can conclude with these, and these are very significant, and it's a very great comfort to hold to this idea of God not changing. The first one I've got listed here is his decrees. His decrees will never change. In other words, his plans do not change. We we talked about that. That's a comfort because our, his plans pertain to us. This goes against the idea that you can lose your salvation. In other words, you can't sin enough such that uh, you're going to reverse the issues of salvation. God has decreed certain things concerning salvation. Those are not going to change. We are secure in him. We are eternally secure. Secondly, we could say that because of God being stable, he has built into the creation certain stability. This makes possible science. The whole concept of repeatability and predictability. We can make observations and and see certain patterns because God has built certain things into the creation. Yes, at some points, God has introduced radical changes, but over spans of long periods of time, we're living under the Noahic covenant and the creation has been stable since then. There's going to be a future change, but in the meantime, we can do science. There's predictability there, so science is possible. Thirdly, he's never going to reverse his love, specifically in terms of you and I. His love is infinite, and it is continuous. It is unchanging. That's a great comfort. We're inconsistent. Our love varies. We don't always do what God desires. We, in fact, sin, but it does not diminish or it does not change the love of God. This is a great comfort. It gives us stability. We don't have to worry. We don't have to fret because we have an immutable God that loves us. Remember the passage, his loving kindness endures forever. So the believer, we could say fourthly, the believer is eternally secure. There's no situation in the future where God is going to change in terms of you and I. We are eternally secure. But also, on the other hand, he's calling us to perseverance and he desires us to persevere. So even though we are secure eternally, that doesn't mean that we can live however we desire The scriptures are equally clear that we've been given volition and he desires that we choose to walk with him and that we persevere. So we need to obey him without the fear that something's going to happen if we don't, but also with the security that he will continually love us and that should motivate us to godly living. So we can conclude in summary We are eternally secure in his plan because God is immutable. Okay. Heavenly Father, thank you for fishing to us. And Lord, help us to to share it with others, Lord, and help us to grow closer to you. Jesus' name.